Hackathons aren't new. Silicon Valley's been using them for years, and they've become commonplace among technologists. But what about a build-a-thon? On this episode of FINRA Unscripted, I sit down with three leaders who pulled together a unique collaboration between FINRA, the private sector, and academia. They challenged some of the world's best technology students at MIT and Harvard to solve common problems facing everyday investors. Check out their insights. Hello and welcome to today's episode of FINRA Unscripted. I'm Chris Van Ness, and today we're broadcasting live from the Build-A-Thon, a partnership between FINRA, Deloitte, and MIT's FinTech Club. I'm joined to my right by Kevin McGovern, managing partner at Deloitte's New England office. Across the table from me, Chuck Senator, a senior advisor for Devonshire Investors at Fidelity Investments, and Jaime Werke, FINRA's head of the Office of Financial Innovation. Gentlemen, good to see you and welcome. Great to be Great here. Great to be here. So we're here at the Build-A-Thon, which I want to get into. And I think a good place to start would just be to tell listeners, what is the Build-A-Thon and where did it come from? Jaime, do you want to give us some thoughts? Sure. So the Build-A-Thon is really an opportunity for us to partner with various stakeholders within the financial industry to try to solve concerns related to investors, right? So it's challenges that basically affect the day-to-day lives of investors and pooling resources from across the industry. For example, regulators, investor advocates, industry participants, and pulling all those resources together in order to be able to solve those challenges. The idea for this really first originated from a conversation that Chuck and I were actually having with Robert Cook, our CEO, around how can we develop partnerships to develop practical solutions for what investors need. And as we're thinking about that, we're thinking about trying to develop a format where you can bring in together those various stakeholders to try to tackle some of those issues and kind of break some of the barriers and break some of the silos that existed in terms of maybe a startup was developing something, they weren't aware of some of the regulations. Maybe as regulations were being developed, they weren't aware of some of the technology-related issues. Maybe investors didn't know kind of about some of the issues about some of the offerings that are actually available. So if you're able to break those barriers and Bring those parties together, we figure that having those parties meet each other, work together collaboratively in order to do it would be something that would be worthwhile. And then from that, we kind of had a bunch of meetings, we had a bunch of discussions, and this is kind of what ended up emanating from it. So what is it? What's happening this weekend? For me, I think this is what I would call a beneficial collision in a good way. That collision, beneficial based- collision, <laughs> not to be confused with uh, a non-beneficial collision. Yeah, we're not talking about a car wreck. We're right. talking about something really wonderful. <laughs> yes, where there's a lot of great energy being created. So the premise beneath this, at least from my perspective, particularly based upon the conversations that we had with Robert, was that there's going to be some imperatives facing us. I think there's very little debate about the speed of innovation and how things are moving ahead and how increasingly there are going to be significant challenges in terms of the industry being able to do what it needs to do. And so at the end of the day, to accelerate this, the idea is to bring people together, number one. Number two, the reason I think FINRA was like a natural place to start is that FINRA has a well-known and wonderful history of industry engagement. There's committees, there's outreach, there's roundtables, things of that nature. And it just shows a real commitment to learning and trying to understand what's happening. But the beauty of something like this, where those cycle times for learning may take sometimes months, working together on a project 
solving something in real time takes the cycle times for that learning from could be months down to minutes. And that's the kind of speed of innovation and speed of getting smarter faster that we're going to need for the future. And so just to stick on that for a second, Chuck, how is this different from other hackathons? I mean, hackathons aren't new, but how is the event today different? FINRA sponsoring it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's an important element, but I would actually add a lot of the hackathons that you'd have would be basically you could have student groups who are looking to do something that's interesting, or you even have some words, industry groups who are looking to do something different. This is one that actually brings together those various parties to actually work together. For example, in this, this particular hackathon, you have student builders and industry builders working side by side to develop solutions. That I don't think has ever been done before. And I think that's something that's new and that's something that's very worthwhile. And layer on top of that, you have regulators from a cross-section of the industries, for example, the Fed, the SEC, the CFTC, the CFPB, all participating as part of this endeavor. So kind of breaking those silos and bringing those parties together in order to come up with solutions, I think something that's very unique. And I think also it's important that Imi started using these words. We actually were originally calling this a hackathon, but we changed the terminology to call it a build-a-thon because we're not trying to hack something. We're actually trying to build solutions. And so we're referring to the students as builders, and we've renamed the event a build-a-thon. And for Deloitte, this is particularly important because we have a decades-old, very close relationship with FINRA. Chuck and I have known each other probably for well over two decades, our relationship with Fidelity. And we love the fact that we could partner with two organizations and others that we know very well and be a convener here in the community and bring together the different constituent groups that Jaime spoke about and help make something happen that's positive, that's forward-looking, that, as Chuck said, the cycle times, we're expecting to have real solutions by Sunday night. And it's really exciting. And I found this with our younger people. You put young, energetic people in a room and you give them a challenge, go reimagine the impossible, Think about what could happen. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where we are by Sunday night. And some free pizza along the way. Pizza goes along, some karaoke, (laughs) right? Human dynamics are true across setting. You give them free food, you give them some good environment, and you get some good energy. Yeah, no, I think that's an important component of it is the fun aspect. So making sure that as people are doing this, they're kind of enjoying what they're doing. And I think that leads to better solutions and leads to the openness of a mind to think about how are ways we can use technology in ways that are potentially different than what we thought of. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about having a student and industry professional dynamic. Students will bring to it a perspective that's not necessarily mirrored in how things have been done before or how roadblocks people know that exist now, but potentially thinking about it in a new way. So if you can kind of build those two participants together with knowledge and expertise around what's in the industry, but a new way of doing something, I think that's really a great thing to see. Yeah. And I look forward to the fact that the student group we're going to have looking at this challenge is quite diverse. And I think one of the challenges that's embedded in the broader question of how do we make investors more engaged? How do we get to more investors? How do we open up the aperture so that more people do invest and they understand what they're investing in? I think we need a diversity of thought. And I'm looking forward to this group bringing that diversity of thought because one of the key aspects of this for us was the fact that this isn't just a business issue. It's a business issue that affects the investor community. So there's as much community aspect here that I think we have to remind ourselves of as it is a business issue as well. To follow on what Kevin said, I started talking about the FINRA sponsoring it. Obviously, Deloitte and MIT made this happen. But the who that's collaborating is a very important consideration. And I can't 
overstate the importance of the step that FINRA has taken in terms of an example that I personally hope ends up resonating with other regulators because the issues that Kevin just described are issues equally for the industry, for the good of the markets, for the good of all of us, and for the regulators. And to the extent that everybody is aligned like this and actually working shoulder to shoulder together, it sends a great message in terms of perhaps having new ways of thinking about how these problems can be addressed. Do you think that other regulators are where they need to be as it relates to technology and innovation and collaboration? This, in my view, is an evolution. So there's no right or wrong answer. We're just where we are. There are models in terms of engagements like this in other countries that may have taken some steps ahead of us. But the thing I'm convinced... Like who? Well, the FCA in the UK, the MOS in Singapore, even the Canadian Securities Administrators Association. It's happening all around us. But the thing about it is that I don't want to suggest that the other regulators are sort of ignoring this. That's not the case at all. I mean, think about the innovation offices that have been springing up at the SEC, the CFTC, the CFPB, the OCC, even here in Massachusetts, and a lot of examples everywhere. So there's energy here. And sometimes things just have to happen when the time is right. And what I'm hoping is that people think looking at this build-a-thon, considering what's happening in other parts of the world, and particularly if, and as I think it will be, a wonderful success and create food for thought, that there will be others that decide, you know, let's go down that road too to see if we can get closer in terms of engaging with the industry, those being the regulators, in terms of helping foster innovation in a responsible way. I want to get to the specifics of the build-a-thon in a second, but to stay broad for another minute, Kevin Deloitte, recently put out a study on fintech and collaboration, mm -hmm. mainly focused on the private sector in talking about large legacy financial institutions collaborating with fintech startups yep. and the changing dynamic from, I believe in Deloitte's words, us versus them to us and them. But despite that change in mindset, there's been struggles in actually collaborating. Different cultures, different internal structures, different missions. My question to you is if you were writing a paper like that about collaboration between the private sector and the public sector, instead of private to private, big and small, mm -hmm. would your findings be the same or different? How would you describe that same issue? I think that the problem set is a little different because you can't divorce the fact that you have business institutions that are regulated by the regulators. Mm -hmm. So it's a different relationship just from the starting blocks between a private company, a large one, and a, maybe an innovative small one that are trying to work together, because there's no regulatory responsibility between those two. But to your broader question, I think what you know, your objective is, is that if and when we do see regulators and companies working more collaboratively, I would hope that the speed to solutionizing is faster, that there is more technology that's used in the answer. And before my current role, I ran Deloitte's compliance and regulatory practice for the U.S., a consulting business. The challenge we always saw was that our clients continue, the companies continue to innovate very, very quickly, but the regulators have a regulatory process that they have to follow. It's a consultative process. It's a broad process. It's often a consensus-oriented process that takes time. And so you have organizations running fast, and they have to. Their customers are demanding it. And you have a regulatory process that has to take care. They have to make careful decisions, well-thought-out decisions. That takes time. So I would hope that the paper, if we wrote it, would say, boy, we've collectively figured out a way to speed up the entirety of the process where companies are moving forward as they have to. Regulators are able to keep pace a little bit more closely than they have been in the past. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I think 
both the industry and the regulators have the general same purpose in mind, which is develop something that's beneficial to the underlying investors, right? To their clients, to the investors. And I think we have different responsibilities in delivering that to the investors, right? But I think that goal is still the same. So I think to the extent that we can kind of keep those responsibilities in mind and work collaboratively towards that same goal, I think that does potentially help to speed up the process. That does help to potentially reduce some of the frictions that exist. That's a good point. Let's talk about the build-a-thon and the specifics, because I feel like it's an event that's a great visual and hard to get your head into without being there. So, Jaime, can you talk a little bit about the specifics of what's happening? Sure. We've got teams and advisors and challenges. So, the build-a-thon is structured as a three-day event. So, the first day is really about getting people to understand what are the outstanding issues that exist in the industry and giving them a perspective. So, there's going to be a number of parties that are going to be participating and talking with the eventual builders, both the student and industry builders, including SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, Robert Cook, our CEO. Chuck will be there as well. And so will Kevin. And so I think having all those parties there to kind of give an overview of what some of the challenges are, what some of the perspectives are, will be kind of like the first day. Tagged on to the end of that first day, the teams will actually get formed to work on these challenges. And both the students groups and the industry groups will come together, form specific teams, focus on what challenges that they want to try to build for, try to develop solutions for, in other words. And then that night, they'll start the hacking. And then Saturday, all day, they'll be hacking. And then Sunday will be the judging. They'll make basically determinations on who came up with the best solutions for the various challenges and ultimately who came up with the best solution overall. And what are they judging on? What's a successful solution? So there's different criteria associated with the judgings. Part of it is effectiveness, just what you build actually provide a solution to what you want to provide a solution to. The other parts are speed to market. And the other things are in terms of the creativity and kind of the uniqueness of the solution. Okay. I know there are four topic areas, four challenges, one focused on investor financial literacy, one on investor onboarding, one on senior investor protection, and one on investor risk assessment. I want to talk for a minute about investor financial literacy, because it's an issue that I know we at FINRA have been working on, and it's, I think, pretty prevalent in a number of different organizations and how we tackle the problem of financial literacy, both FINRA's National Financial Capability Study, along with a study that we recently put out with the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center, show how much of a problem financial literacy is in the U.S. The stat that stood out to me was that 29% of respondents report having been offered financial education at school, at college, at a workplace, and only 20% of those people have participated in financial education. My question to you all is, how can technology solve this problem? This Maybe we can give it a start to sort of kick it off and we can kind of brainstorm a bit. So one of the things that strikes me, I think the stat is right, that there was up to 40% of U.S. households don't have any investment accounts whatsoever. And then you can sort of think about the literacy issues as another lens on that. So clearly there's a difficulty in reaching them, is a difficulty in connecting with them. And the thing that strikes me as an initial kind of opening bid to think about this is that while 40% of households in the U.S. have no investment accounts, about 250 million out of 300 million have smartphones. And so there is connection happening there. And it strikes me as sort of like an opening bid to think about different ways of connecting. I mean, there are sort of 
ways where friction's been removed through other ap- applications like payments and other things like that. Insurance, even you can sort of get a loan. You know, or the unbanked. We're even thinking about types of uh, issues with smartphones. So, to me, I mean, it's kind of like an opening bid to sort of think about: Are there ways to democratize it and bring it down to a level where people can be met where they are at? Yeah, Chris, the statistic you read is really quite alarming. One in five people. Well, and if you think about the ones that actually took the course out of the one in three that were allowed to have it, it's right. probably even less. But you know, I'll pick up where Chuck left off. We spend a lot of time with our clients designing how they engage with their customers. So if you think about the users of financial literacy as the customers of broker-dealers and wealth management firms and asset managers, et cetera, one of the things we know is you have to meet people where they are. If you put something out, but nobody's going to read it because they can't access it or it's too long or it's too complicated, they won't. And I say this all the time. I think about my 83-year-old mother who receives prospectuses in the mail because she has a bunch of mutual funds she's invested in. She's never read one. I don't think she even opens up the envelope because it's thick, it's scary. I don't and think to she's her, the only one. <laughs> yeah, I, I know she's not the only one. I'm running through examples in right? my own head. Yeah, of course, of, we, all uh, have, you know, we all have family members that have, that have the in. same yeah, issue, yeah, yeah. right? And, and, and the challenge is the senior community, I'm not so sure how we solve that problem. But if you think about underrepresented minorities and others who have the 250 million smartphones that Chuck talked about, sending them things that they can access that's more in line with how they consume information today. We use things like gamification. We think about videos as compared to written word. There are ways that people consume information today that I think is more digestible and sticks in their brains better. And I think we have to really think about how do we use those to push the envelope. And some of those will require regulatory changes and different regulatory thought processes. But I think there are some ways here that are available to us that we use in other means that we can use here. How can regulation and the evolution of regulation support that? A lot of the financial literacy is really around something that I would consider to be a public good, right? So there's a general benefit that's associated with increasing it to the broader financial industry, but there may not necessarily be a financial incentive for a specific party to try to engage in providing it. And I think what an event like this potentially does is kind of bring some of that technology solutions, such as gamifications, that have been developed for other types of things and helps to put it in a place where there's potentially a good that can be provided for it. And that's what financial literacy potentially is, is that solution where people necessarily haven't been looking for the technology-based solution for it. But what if you have technology techniques that have been developed in other areas so you can potentially adapt onto it, I think that's what an event like this potentially helps bring about. So... We are filming on Friday before the event starts, and this will post after the event is over. And so I want to ask you guys kind of a broad question that won't give away the store for participants. But my question is, if you close your eyes and think of what an ideal picture of the winning challenge could be in any one of the challenge areas or the overall winner. But when you think about what a winning challenge looks like at an event like this, What is it? I think in my mind, it's something that provides a real-world solution or makes a substantial step to providing a real-world solution to a problem that investors are facing. So as you mentioned, there's four different categories. It doesn't matter which of those categories it is, but it's something that takes a leap forward and trying to develop something that's a little bit different and moves the ball forward. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do is try to make sure that this event is not the end, 
We've actually been working with uh, Mass Challenge with Chuck's help and some other people's help to try to take this a step further. So for example, if the winning team actually develops a solution, What's the next step? And the next step is really trying to provide a platform where that solution can potentially get commercialized or potentially get put out into the industry and provides kind of real-world solutions going forward. Obviously, Finner doesn't endorse or say this product's the right product to use, but providing that platform where that could potentially get carried forward, I think, is, is really a good thing to see come out of something like this. Chuck, Kevin, what do you guys think? I'm going to pivot to something different and maybe sort of less macro. So I'm going to talk about compliance. And so the closest challenge presents more compliance issues is the one involving risk management, risk assessment. And what I think about is as things get more complex, as data explodes, and I saw this stat the other day that blew my mind where I guess all the data created in human history, 90% of it was created in the last two years. So we have an explosion of data. Now put that in firms. And, and, I'm trying to think of the line graph on that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a hockey stick on steroids. Yeah, yeah. Think about having to manage all this, because like, apparently most firms don't know that they even have 75% of their data, don't know what to do with it. So at the end of the day, it's to the extent that we can harness this, whether it's through machine learning, artificial intelligence, those types of things. The cool thing, I think, would be it's a kind of take the compliance role, which tends to be kind of like a second-tier oversight role, when thinking about the firm's threshold duty to supervise and sort of manage its affairs, to the extent that this data can be used in a way and harvested in a way and insights gained from it in a way that sort of takes those two elements of the firm and sort of causes them to, cause them to collapse more. We have in a real time being able to sort of ascertain what those issues are and then not just use them to sort of catch people, but also to help them guide their clients. Sure. That could be really game changing. And specifically related to that, the fourth challenge that we have is really about developing a process where you can take various products that exist out in the marketplace and identify the characteristics associated with them that potentially pose risks for seniors. So you could have a heightened level of supervision or, or more oversight associated with those projects. And that's taken in data. So we have uh, working with Morningstar to develop data that the builders can use in order to be able to find out things like the risks that are outlined in the prospectus, as well as kind of the various time horizons associated with those products that may be appropriate or not appropriate for seniors, depending on how they're structured. I think embedded in both Jaime's last answer and what Chuck was saying before is the fact that the availability of data is so present now. Personal data, of course, very private and confidential data, but it's there. And when you wrap around it, the smart technologies that exist, whether it's artificial intelligence or other cognitive tools that we and, and we see our clients using, there is the opportunity now to think about what used to be the impossible, right? So is there a way for me to have my data in one place, my personal data, and provide it to all of the financial institutions I want, right? So I don't have to put it in a dozen times. And as it changes, it changes once. Is that an answer that can be used using the blockchains? It's bringing together all of these different capabilities and thinking about, okay, what could we possibly do here? What is the art of the possible in terms of solving some of these problems? We see our clients struggle all the time with know your customer rules. Mm -hmm. And every single institution has their own set of KYC activities. And there have been some conversations about building utilities. So it'll facilitate a common set of data around common customers. But that's still pretty early days. And so can we start to really make progress against some sort of, you know, broad-based KYC utility that would literally cut millions of dollars of costs out of every single financial institution? 
So things like that, like big steps forward. Of course, there's data privacy issues around that, information security issues around that, accessibility issues around that. But I think they're actually solvable given a lot of the technologies that are available today. That's a great point. And I know we're running short on time, but I want to build as a final question on your point about making incremental progress. My last question to all of you is if you had one piece of advice for your counterpart, for Chuck and Kevin, on the government side and for Jaime on the industry side, if you had one piece of advice to leverage collaborations like this, what would it be? Because it seems like this is a starting That's point. A question. <laughs> it's a starting point, and it's not an not an ending point. Yeah. And so, Chuck, you talked earlier about the different regulators around the world and what they're doing, and the landscape is changing. And some regulators are catching up. Some regulators are leading. Some industry participants are catching up, and some are leading. So, what piece of advice would you have to leverage collaborations like this? Well, I have a point of view on this. So the securities regulators around the world, the banking regulators around the world, the investment-oriented regulators around the world, all have basically the same goal, right? Protection of investors, appropriate information provision at the right time, risk management within the firms. But the individual regimes can be quite different. And so if there was one thing, I would say, let's all get together and sit around and talk about what could be a common set of rules that we can all agree to so that the flow of information is easier and the actual oversight of that from a regulatory perspective can be more consistent globally. Chuck, what do you think? This at first blush may seem less ambitious. Um, because as Kevin says, I mean, even our own country, forget again, even putting aside the rest of the world, we have highly balkanized and numerous different sort of regulatory pockets that sometimes don't play together. So I'm going to, for the short run, assume that that's just a given. And I guess for me, and I see that because the green shoots of what I'm about to suggest happening here at the Build-A-Thon and through other efforts, through other innovation offices, is that to sort of have, make sure my regulatory friends recognize something that we've all been saying in this discussion, that is, we are deeply aligned when it comes to a common interest in the health of the markets and the faith that the public has in the industry and has in the integrity of the markets. So that being said, while understanding that there's an oversight role that practically prevents a regulator really sort of being a true all-in partner, right. to really think about this in a way where, you know, in terms of our mission, uh, to the extent that we can help or pave the way for innovation thinking about new ways of giving guidance, thinking about new ways of giving indications of possibilities, taking sort of like the risk alerts and the releases to the next step where they're actually engaging and maybe thinking about things with you, I think that would be a great sort of first step in the short run until we kind of tackle the balkanization problem down the road. Sure. Well, if you figure out how to create one global regulatory regime <laughs> that is all on the same uh, network and server, I mean, you should definitely tell somebody about it because I think there's probably some people who would be very interested. We're, we're thinking big, Chris. We're yes, thinking big. Right. Right. Next podcast. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Jaime, what do you think? So thinking from the industry perspective, the one thing I would just note is that it's okay to pick up the phone and talk to your regulator, right? Especially these offices of financial innovations or similar offices that are spawning out with different regulators. Getting that initial conversation about something that you're thinking about, I think potentially can help you from going down the wrong path. 
and getting to an end where you've already invested a bunch of money and regulators saying, well, we have this concern and that concern and, and this concern. And I see people approaching it from both ways. There's some who just kind of go ahead and do what they're going to do. And then they come back to the regulator and go, well, we're done. You know, here's what it is. And then, you know, you have those conversations about these are potential risks that we see. And then there's others who kind of have that initial conversation and then they proceed forward to kind of which way is appropriate. I do think there's some benefit to that. Now, you won't always get the answer you like, right? I mean, you are taking that risk, but I think that's a better place to be than to actually have gone forward with something that creates a lot of issues. All right. Well, we're out of time, so we've got to leave the conversation there. But thank you all for joining me, joining FINRA here today, and looking forward to a a great event this weekend. So thanks for coming. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Please note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation to such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO, or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form without the express written consent of FINRA. FINRA.